Hello, welcome back and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas, everyone. You're in the bit between Christmas and New Year as you're listening to the, to this. And as we record it, we are within touching distance of going home for the holidays. We are. We are oh. almost driving home for Christmas. <laughs> or don't catching we the feel it? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> we do, we do, yes. but we're feeling festive. We, we have fe- festive drinks at our sides. Yes, non-alcoholic, Vice Chancellor. Non-alcoholic, um, and we're full of festive cheer. And it is our intention to loosely centre this Christmas episode, this Christmas special, around the 12 days of Christmas. So we have secretly, um, unbeknownst to one another, come up with six items, uh, two for well-being two for something to try and two for something interesting and we are going to pull them out of a santa hat randomly (laughs) (laughs) and uh and give them to you as some extra extra presents under your christmas tree because we are good to you before we do that uh, a quick festive uh plea for some ratings and reviews we had some really nice ones actually at one stage there's some people started reviewing us and rating us but it's kind of dropped off a little bit and we're feeling unloved so if you could possibly uh, raise yourself from your carb coma on the sofa and uh, <laughs> rate and review us, it would be really nice because I don't think either of us actually believe we've got listeners sometimes, do we? That's a very good point. Yeah, make yourselves known to us uh, yes. and uh, let us know nicely. what you think. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. don't, don't tell us we're rubbish at Christmas. That would be, that would be harsh. Okay, <laughs> yes. so we've got our usual three uh, regular slots because we always have some things lined up, but because we have so many guests, they usually have things lined up as well. And so we've got an enormous surplus of uh, lovely ideas that we never get to use. So yeah. we're going to pull them out of the hat or pull them out of a pencil case that a student has foolishly left in my classroom. Don't reveal. <laughs> We've just created this the is radio, mystery. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, the, the hat. It's a hat. It's not, it's not a pencil case. <laughs> <laughs> go Do you on, want then. to go you, first? No, or? you no? pick. Okay. You pick. So I pick. Doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be me that's going to be speaking. It's very true. But it is. It's it is. me, and it's well-being. Okay. Okay. So I have got a well-being tip here. Now, normally uh, our tips are ways to improve your own well-being. But I'm going to slightly twist it around a bit um, at this festive season and think about ways that we can maybe improve somebody else's well-being instead. Oh, nice. Which is a nice little twist. And I I want to kind of coin a, a phrase or, or make a concept. I couldn't really work out what I wanted to call it. Um, so I'm going to call it well-being leverage. <laughs> <laughs> well-being leverage. This is not, uh, <laughs> not a term anybody else has come up with, I don't think. It's just it's something I've made up. So the idea here is everybody's very busy um teachers are all kind of hanging on by by their fingernails and we're all kind of encouraged to look out for one another and be kind to one another and and make sure everybody's okay and i guess sometimes we all have that slight feeling of well hang on a minute i'm not sure i've really got enough time to make sure that i'm up and about and walking around and fully clothed and doing my job and all of that never mind looking after somebody else at the same time so I'm just going to kind of maybe make that a little bit easier by introducing the idea of leverage. And anyone who's a scientist who's listening will know that a lever is simply a thing which allows you to exert a small force to move a really, really big, heavy thing. So this is my idea for just giving you the concept that you could exert a very small well-being force to, to make a very big well-being effect. 
Oh, that sounds so, interesting. Yes. That was very well, uh, <laughs> very well explained. Thank you. And I'm not a science teacher, as we all know, but there we go. Um, and I'm going to use an example uh, from myself here. Um, all details kind of removed. So let's just let's just picture the scene, and let's, without giving any details, let's just assume that I've just had the worst day of my teaching career, uh, without giving any any sort of further details of that. And there I was sitting uh, here with the worst day of my teaching career, uh, just behind me the day before and I just want to give a shout out to the person who came in and had a cup of tea with me (laughs) who might not be sitting a million miles away from me right now um, who was out on a school visit and instead of turning her car westward for home turned it eastwards towards campus when she didn't need to and uh, I had a phone call saying I'm in the coffee shop and we're going to have a cup of tea. Aww. And obviously, on a really kind of objective level, um, I think it was probably about a four-mile diversion out of your way, and it was a cup of tea, which is is not a huge thing. But because it was not a great day for me that particular day, that cup of tea has attained mythic proportions. Oh, survival our, cuppa. Yeah, kind of. Yeah, in our sort of in our friendship story. And with that very, very small thing, uh, you did a very, very big thing. Your, your well-being uh, act had enormous leverage because right at that moment, uh, somebody having a cup of tea with me was exactly what I needed. So I'm just putting it out there at this festive season that you don't actually have to do something huge and extravagant. You just have to apply your force uh, in the right place at the right time and you could have a disproportionate effect on someone's well-being and maybe make them your friend for life. Oh, that's that was a lovely one. What a nice one to start off mm. with. And you're absolutely right. I, I, I would agree with that wholeheartedly. And I, I would imagine there are countless times on everybody's uh, list that somebody has done something seemingly very small um, that has made them feel a world better um and my well-being tip later on has got a, a kind of similar theme actually so excellent okay so there we go a well-being tip for you well-being leverage i'm copywriting well-being that. leverage yeah. it's, it sounds very utilitarian <laughs> it, does, it sounds a little it? bit yeah do a small thing but do it the right way yeah have a big effect there yes. you go okay i have pulled one out of the not quite a hat and actually it's emma well-being there oh we my go. gosh! <laughs> we shuffled these. I did I'm shuffle shake them. I promise. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not going to help. They're kind of yeah, you, yeah. You can't see what's going on no. here. Okay, right. Um, in which case, I'm going to do the one that links most nicely to that, um, and it actually, funnily enough, links to a time when I was feeling particularly bad. Um, I was having a particularly bad run of days, actually, and was feeling very, very low. And I know that, um, you know, in the spirit of, uh, you know, the movement of it, letting people know that it's okay to not be okay, I'm letting you know that at um, a not too distant time, I wasn't feeling so good. And this was somebody um, outside of the working world who um, is a good friend. And she said something to me, shared something with me um, that someone, a friend of hers had said to her when she was feeling pretty much at rock bottom. Okay, so first of all, a wide message is it's okay to feel at rock bottom. And, you know, that will be very much dependent on, on what your rock bottom is. But if you're feeling at rock bottom 
And these are for the rock bottom times because otherwise this will seem like a really, really silly wellbeing tip. So if you're at rock bottom, my friend Rachel says, the only thing that you need to do that day is breathe in and breathe out. And that is your only objective. Sometimes when we are feeling at absolute rock bottom, the best that we can do, and it's enough, is to simply breathe in and breathe out. Excellent. Well, I think the only way is up from here because we've both started <laughs> off by uh, making explicit the fact that we've both had pretty bad days at work. It, we love working here most of the time. But yeah, we do. these things, I think teaching is one of those things, isn't it? We always say the highs are very high and the lows are very low. And maybe it's a good thing to just kind of pull the curtain back to anyone who's listening and say, yep applies to us too <laughs> yes indeed indeed okay so breathing in and breathing out and am i still pulling these out well-being you leverage uh no you carry on am you're doing I a great job there oh, doing a great job feeling an awesome sense of responsibility here uh, all right it's me oh it's well-being again and it's me <laughs> right i'm passing this over to you to I will shuffle, shuffle while i promise i did <laughs> actually it's very good that that's come out now because this well-being tip is linked to the last one uh, in which I uh, said that you you made me a cup of tea and it had a a very, very big effect Uh on my day. And if by that you, uh, listener, have been inspired to go and try and do that for somebody else, somebody that you work with, a colleague, um, I just want to point out the other really, really important thing about that cup of tea that I had made for me. And that was the fact that the phone call that I received uh, that day said, I am here and we're having a cup of tea. It didn't say, would you like me to come in and have a cup of tea with you? Because as a card carrying teacher, we're all bad at this. We won't actually ever say yes to that question. Yeah, that's a very good point because we don't want to put on other people no. do we because actually at that particular moment in time you were really struggling with workload and i think had you actually said to me shall i come in i would have said no i'm fine don't worry about it you've got loads of work to do go home to your dog and it will be fine mm. while my mind was screaming at me yes please come in and have a yeah. cup of tea with me so i'm just going to put it out there that if you are feeling like going out and and waving your well-being lever around <laughs> 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 oh, it's become a thing. <laughs> <laughs> you may wish to just consider that as teachers, we are our own worst enemies. And uh, that colleague may not tell you that they need you to do it. You might ask them and they might say no. So sometimes the best thing to do is just to do it. Yeah, take the option out of their hands, take it off the table and just go be with them i think that's yeah i i would agree with all of those things so if you're sat on the sofa thinking of yourself go make someone else a cup of tea or get them a mince pie or do something for someone who could do with a bit of a well-being lever yes and if you're making a new year's resolution maybe you should go and do that for a colleague next term as well because Hmm. uh, spring term coursework pressures if you're in secondary um, you know, someone might really thank you for that cup of tea and you might make a friend for life. Lovely. Very nice start. OK, we've been all about well-being, yeah. so let's hope that this next one at You've the hat... You've confiscated the hat <laughs> pencil case. I have. I've just got a, a neat pile now. OK, so it's me. OK. And it's something interesting. OK, I'm going to try the difficult one first. It's not a difficult one, but... Okay. Yeah, it's uh, it's one that I've been trying to get my head around. So um, 
one of my research interests uh, is creativity. Um, and to give a bit of context to this, um, I'm studying for my PhD and I one of the difficult things when you're studying for PhD is to not get kind of drawn off on a tangent um, into something else that's also interesting but not related to your PhD per se. Um, and this happened to me of late and I just went, I decided to go with it because it was interesting. So I was reading a book about drama education. Um, the book is an edited book by David Hornbrook entitled On the Subject of Drama. But don't worry if you're thinking, I know nothing about drama, nothing, drama's nothing to do with me. This is actually about creativity. And that agenda is, is, is high priority within education in Wales and I'm sure beyond. In fact, um, on Sunday the 1st of December, Network Ed uh, on Twitter or Network Ed chat, to use the hashtag, um, hosted a discussion um, hosted by our lovely Rachel George, who was a guest uh, last year, um, hosted a discussion about creativity. And the questions that she asked were, what does creativity mean to you and what role does it play in your learning and teaching? What do we see as the roles of creativity, creative thinking and teaching for creative learning? And how can we ensure schools are developing the notion of an enterprising mindset? So I'm not going to talk about anything to do with that network head chat, but I thought I'd give it a heads up um, or give it a shout out, not a heads up. <laughs> you can tell I've got holiday brain. Um, so it got me thinking um, about creativity and how creativity is viewed, um, what it involves. Um, and I've often felt um, passionately that creativity is not just ring fence to the arts. Um, and I've also always felt that uh, it is not ring fenced to those who are simply born creative types. There's a little bit of a myth out there, I believe, um, that you're either creative or you're not. Um, so this chapter in this book that I stumbled across... Um, written by Sharon Balin, um, who I will I will read to you about in a moment, just that you know who she is. But this uh, chapter is entitled Creativity in Context. And I just wanted to read a couple of quotes from it, um, just to give you some, some thoughts about creative teaching um, and creative learning. So first of all, kind of she sets up a bit of a, um, a dichotomy in her argument process. Um, she sets this up so that she can then address uh, a commonly held view that creativity can either be viewed um, and measured or valued from the inner processes. So by being sort of internally creative thinking, a creative thinker um, and can also be viewed by its products, so creative outcomes, um, so the products of creativity. So the first quote that she opens this chapter with is, for the past 50 years, drama education in schools has been underwritten by a particular philosophical perspective concerning persons, culture and education, a form of romantic naturalism, which views the person in his or her natural state as essentially good and culture as potentially damaging to this natural goodness. From this perspective, education becomes a liberation and a development of what is within us rather than an acquisition and assimilation of what is without. 
At the centre of this picture is an account of creativity which emphasises psychological processes within the individual and de-emphasises significant achievement and the making of products. Now this got me thinking, it got me thinking about this debate about, you know, you're either born creative, it's an innate thing that, you know, if you try and put too much, um, if the teacher tries to put too much structure around creativity, then you kill the creativity, um, you know, and creative acts. And creativity should be should be um, valued for its own sake, not the product of it. You know, who measures that? And a lot of the conversation on Twitter in and around the Network Ed chat was about, you know, should we be assessing um, creative outcomes and you know should we even be talking about you know creative outcomes that have value um and someone brought up the famous ken robinson um definition of creativity so creative acts um that that have value or innovative acts that have value and it, it got me thinking about um you know who creative types are and who we value in in uh, in society and history who have been creative. She actually gives the example of Einstein and Shakespeare as two famous creatives. And what she does in this chapter is she tries to disprove uh, the notion that this is an internal thing that shouldn't be tampered with and that we kill creativity if we try to engineer it um, and that product isn't important and that judgment is also not important because if we're judging it as we're going along then we're not being generative we're not being creative we're not let, letting the kind of creative juices flow so um she says the this emphasis on the intuitive and the spontaneous has led to the creative process being seen as fundament fundamentally generative and non-evaluative. She says that judgment becomes an impediment to creativity. Students engaged in improvisation, um, and you can replace that with any kind of subject-specific um, creative act, will be more creative, so the argument goes, if they withhold their judgment of the ideas generated, and the more unjudged ideas they generate, the greater the likelihood of an authentically creative outcome. Um, and she raises the point uh, about um, being able to generate large numbers of novel uses um, being sort of a generative thing. Uh, it links with Ken Robinson, who talks about children being able to come up with many usages for a paperclip. Um, and the older they get, the less creative they are and the less usages they can come up with. Um, but she beautifully just dismantles that whole argument um, by making a very strong argument for the importance of judgment to the generating process and to the process of creativity. Um, so she says the claim that creativity is primarily an attribute of persons um, rests on the belief that there is a specific process or way of thinking involved in all acts of creating, a kind of thinking which is generative, divergent, non-logical, rule-breaking and non-evaluative. This belief is difficult to sustain. There seems rather to be a variety of process which is involved in creating and these include thinking which is convergent as well as divergent, logical as well as unusual, evaluative as well as generative and rule-bound as well as rule-breaking. Rule in fact, 
These kinds of thinking are not easily separated. One must judge even in the process of generating ideas or the results would be chaos rather than creation. Um, and she goes on, you know, some other really, really um, beautiful quotes um, and I guess, you know, bringing it back to my current state of play and, and how I'm viewing it is I have often felt that um, the death of creativity is actually not thinking about it as a, a slightly more scientific process um, and as being ring-fenced to the arts, as I said at the start. So I thought it might be an opportunity to share this with the listeners and to share um, with listeners who might be kind of puzzling, you know, how they create creative opportunities for their learners. Um, because actually what, what she says is that, you know, it starts with judgment. It starts with what you know before you can you can do something creative. You, know, you can't create in a vacuum. Um, so it starts with you going, right, well, what, what have I got? to be creative with otherwise you know you kind of you kind of all at sea without any answers so yeah that's what I've been reading <laughs> mm. and we had one of our vintage phone conversations about this didn't we when yeah. you'd, you'd read it and I think as two people that come from you know the arts the creative arts darling I think we've both got some some views you know we, we view certain aspects of the creativity debate with a little bit of healthy suspicion I think we're this close to put an episode together on this but I think we might both have to down a couple of drinks first because yeah. we'd, have to, <laughs> we'd have to really say what we think about certain things I think it's it's a really knotty one isn't it it is a knotty one I think Einstein is a really really good example actually um and i would imagine you know any any of the kind of top scientists um because you know it it talk, she talks in this about you know creativity taking place within really clear constraints and before you can innovate which is what a lot of scientists do they kind of push the boundaries of, of what is known and what is what is unknown you have to know what is known first before and you have to know the set of conventions before you can step outside of those conventions um so yeah that's i i, I found it incredibly interesting i also found it very grounding um because creativity can kind of be a little bit conceptual and a little bit abstract and you know teachers who are trying to foster it and trying to teach in a creative way you know don't necessarily have anything to grip onto when they're trying to do that i think we need to do this episode there's an awful lot of things we could say about this but should we save it and mm. be really controversial in the new year i agree and listeners if it doesn't come out nag us on twitter because we're probably just too scared to record it yeah, totally <laughs> so agree what was that chapter again just to recap oh yeah so this chapter um is entitled creativity in context it's by Sharon Balin it's from an edited book by uh, David Hornbrook which is entitled On the Subject of Drama. But Sharon Balin, I ought to note, um, is a professor of drama education in the Faculty of Education, Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada. For all of our Canadian listeners, hey, there more you go. Canadians, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there you go. Okay, next. Right, next up, I see your name. Oh, here we go. Yeah, something to try. Something to try. Okay, um... I'm gonna go a bit techy with this one. Okay. Um, and I am one of these people that 
seems to get a reputation for being Mr. Tech, even though I have a healthy <laughs> suspicion for all things tech. So I think this one, this is something to try combines technology and my healthy suspicion of it Ooh. in a neat kind of way. So something to think about, because if we are in the Christmas holidays listening to this, Hopefully things have come to a bit of a halt work-wise mm-hmm. um, and maybe the new year is an opportunity to maybe reset some ways of working which might have become a little bit unhelpful or unhealthy. Mm-hmm. And I just want to remind everybody that it is possible on your phone that that's a tyrannical device that we're all kind of chained to <laughs> all of the time. It is possible on your phone to decide not only which notifications you get on your screen, but also uh, whether that little red number appears on an app. (gasps) And I just want to share with the listeners that, yes, I do have my work email on my phone, although I I will be taking it off for the Christmas holidays. But, you know, during normal working times, I do have my work email on my phone, but it cannot send me notifications and I cannot see how many unread emails I've got. I can Mm. only find out by going into the app. Similarly, uh, my WhatsApp does not notify me and I cannot see how many unread messages I have. Um, while my text messages beep, I can't see them and I don't know what I've got. Um, I have been in and I have an, had an absolute cull of notifications and what they call badges um, on Apple mm. devices. Badges are those little red things. And there's some fascinating stuff out there that you can read about the kind of ethics of technology design and the fact that it actually is in the interests of the likes of Facebook and Google and all that, like to have our eyeballs kind of glued to them at all times. Mm. And therefore, the way that they design things is to make it very difficult for us to break our attention. You know, the fact that that little number is in a red dot um, is no coincidence because yes. the little red dot kind of grabs our eyes. There are people who go the whole hog and actually switch their whole screen to grayscale so they can't see the colours. Yes. Um, I did try that, but yeah, I, I changed it back. But definitely, definitely consider going into your notification settings and deciding whether you really, really, really need that app to show you notifications, whether you need it to show you, um, you know, unread message numbers or whether it can wait until you make the conscious decision to go in and have a look tyranny is the right word oh, yes those red badges those tyrants yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, absolutely i mean it's the same with the email inbox i think we talked about this in a previous episode just knowing that you have something to deal with mm. takes a chunk of your attention away from what you need to be doing and so that's why i'm the also the master of email rules because certain things i think i mentioned um Uh, various members of staff in my previous job who I had email rules for because they just kept sending things that weren't relevant. Yeah, very, very good tip. And I, you've shared this with me and I've done it and it has made a a big difference, actually. Oh, I didn't know you'd done it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I've done a lot of things that you've suggested, actually. You're very (laughs) influential. Why? (laughs) You're an influencer. I feel an awesome sense of responsibility to be careful what I say now. Yeah, no, those... Yeah, I, I just hadn't really thought... How about how how controlling they are? Um, mm. You know, you just yeah, they just sit there staring at you and, and draw you into the app. And often it's you know just absolutely you know tosh that they're drawing you into. Oh, it's nothing yeah. nothing of any importance. Definitely. So there we go. Lovely. 
Okay, Next. so that was your something to try. It was, it was. So now we've got you again, Ooh. and it's your and it's a something interesting. Okay, so I think. Uh, because we've had a, we've had something quite academic from you just now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'm going to continue in the vein. I'm going to save my slightly lighter one until later. I'm going to share an article that we've both enjoyed lately, Ooh. and maybe it's a sort of encouragement as well that for those of us working in teaching, we're all being encouraged to look at academic material a lot more, a lot more articles and things like that. And I think one of the things that we find is that sometimes you read an article and it doesn't necessarily tell you something you didn't know. Mm -hmm. It just puts something that you knew kind of in your bones as a teacher down in black and white. And there's always a really nice feeling when somebody's gone to the trouble to actually prove something that you know Mm. in your heart of hearts as a teacher. So, you know, all this research-informed stuff that we talk about at the moment in the teaching profession, it's in no way devaluing all that kind of craft knowledge and all that accumulated experience. But it's really nice sometimes to be able to to just back it up with with some kind of hard evidence. And the one that I'm going to bring to us today is by, I think it's Carl Mayton. We're calling him Carl Mayton. It might yeah. be Matten, but we're going to call him Mayton. 2013. And it's it's got a title that's that's not perhaps the most encouraging, particularly if if you're sitting in a Christmas haze. It's called, <laughs> but stick with me. It's called Making Semantic Waves: A Key to Cumulative Knowledge Building, and it's in the Linguistics and Education Journal. And what this article does, just to kind of uh, crunch it right down into an easily digestible thing for us today. It tells us about the way that teachers work to take complicated things and make them accessible for our pupils, which obviously is a thing that we do every single day as Mm -hmm. teachers. We take a complicated thing and we make it so that our pupils who don't know anything about it can understand it. And in the process of doing that, it defines two things, semantic gravity and semantic density. Uh, I know, I know, already I think some people are reaching for another glass of something yeah, strong, yeah. but you know, <laughs> stick with me. Semantic gravity and semantic density, and, and slightly unfortunately, the slightly difficult thing about these is that in terms of difficulty, they go in opposite directions, which was something that we found quite hard to get our heads around, wasn't it, when we, yeah, we were working our way through this Yeah, we had have a good article. chew on this, didn't we? We spent a good while working on this, and we, we made quite a lot of pictures and things like that. So, uh, semantic gravity is, if we consider a thing, a concept, a piece of knowledge, or an idea, semantic gravity is is simply the extent to which it's rooted in context so we give it a specific context and in the in the case of semantic gravity if we put something in a specific context it's easier to understand Ah. it's a thing that's easy so if it has strong semantic gravity it's easy Mm -hmm. and if it has weak semantic gravity it means we understand it decontextualized which is harder Mm-hmm. So strong is easy, weak is hard in semantic gravity. So the example, I think one of the examples that we used when we were talking about this was the idea of uh, knowing about the Battle of Hastings, for example, mm-hmm. as a history teacher or, or, you know, something to do with the Second World War or something like that. A very specific contextual thing mm-hmm. or to go right down the other end of the scale, war. war the thing i mean that's a that's a massive thing it's it's quite decontextualized it's hard to understand and i suppose if you know 
the more you know about war, so the weaker the semantic gravity. Yeah. So therefore the harder it is, yeah. but the more you know about war, the I suppose the deeper you can go when it has um stronger semantic gravity. So you can look at the Battle of Hastings in a a whole new way yeah and the more you can transfer things i guess to new and unfamiliar things so as a teacher we're we're not going to start by saying hey kids we're going to learn about war today because that's really hard we're going to start with specific contextual examples semantic density works a slightly different way around and semantic density is is in how many ways a thing is understood in different connections. Uh, so the example, we, we used the example gold, didn't we, in yeah. one of the things that we were looking at. In the and context of science, didn't yeah, we? Yeah, we looked at it in the context of science initially and we kind of said, okay, you, you could understand gold in just one way, which is, you know, it's a shiny metal. Mm-hmm. Or if you're doing science, you could understand it in terms of where it sits on the periodic table or, you know, what kind of um, structure it has. Mm-hmm. Uh, molecular structure or you could understand it in terms of its melting point or you know its reactivity or something like that you start understanding gold uh, connecting it in a lot of different ways so semantically dense yeah you become more semantically dense mm-hmm. um, and that gets harder so it's going the other way around the more dense you get the harder it is because you understand the thing in more different ways and we actually took gold then didn't we and we took it out of science yeah and we said that gold well actually if you're in if you're in sports if you win gold it means you came first mm-hmm. um if, if you talk about gold you know it's got got connections with being rich mm-hmm. it's kind of got connections with maybe being slightly tastelessly rich yeah exactly you know and so gold suddenly has an awful lot uh, uh, more understandings you know you understand it in an awful lot of different ways and and as a teacher you've probably got to isolate it initially yes you've got to give it uh, you know far fewer connections so you're gonna you're gonna remove all of its connections and give it a much weaker semantic density and only as your pupils get older and more experienced in the world and understanding of the kind of metaphorical associations with things and you know mm-hmm. more complicated scientific associations with gold will it start to make sense in a whole load of different ways and connect to a load of other different things and its semantic density will become stronger so what is the point of this i hear you ask <laughs> <laughs> well what this article goes on to do is it goes on to visualize the process by which teachers take these complicated things and make them accessible to pupils so it talks about the way that we will take a thing and initially we will present it to pupils with strong semantic gravity and weak semantic density Mm. so we will put it in a clear context and we will forget about all those other meanings we'll just give it one meaning so that people can get it but we will then start to you know so we'll take the thing and we will make it simple and it's got loads of diagrams it it calls them escalators you know you start off with it super complicated and and decontextualized and as teachers we kind of move down the escalator of difficulty Mm. by doing exactly that But then it makes the point that if we just do that with a load of things, we're not doing the pupils any favours because they then just understand a load of things in separate contexts and unconnected. Can't transfer. Exactly. And so this author, Mayton, goes out into a series of lessons and watches as teachers take these things, make them easy, and then, crucially, 
repack them, re kind of connect them to the rest of the world, mm. start kind of weakening that need for context so that pupils can start making things transferable and, and start making connections. And of course, in Donaldson world, we talk about powerful connections. Mm. So this is really important. And so, so the wave, this sort of diagram, instead of just coming all the way downwards, it comes downwards and then kind of changes direction and starts going upwards again. Yes. So it's just a really nice way of visualising a thing that we all do by instinct and giving it names and explaining why we do it and explaining that maybe we do it in different ways and in different directions and in different shapes mm. in different subjects and the rain is pouring down <laughs> it's telling you on to our stop. skylight above us so yeah it's, it's not a festive sound of snow falling listeners no, this is absolutely pouring rain outside directly above our, our desk here which has been known to leak so I hope it doesn't so I'm just recommending that as a nice example of an article that um, puts into words something that we all do every day without thinking about it so that we can maybe think about it a bit more explicitly. Yeah, I think that's a really great one and it really kind of opens your eyes once you know this and you've got this kind of conceptual frame for it, the theory behind it. You see it more more visibly yeah. everywhere. Yeah. I, I was on a school at training day on our school um on, on our uh, course the other day and a student teacher was talking about a lesson that they had observed of their peers in a different subject discipline and they described this lesson particular lesson was a geography lesson that was about aging populations and what the teacher had done is as the starter they had looked at uh, the case of an old person an elderly person it was like a case study um and asked the pupils you know how difficult might their life be when they're when they're at this age and what might they need to support them before the teacher went on to zoom out and look at aging populations as a thing um you know look at impact look at um consequences etc um so you know hearing that tale just made me think you know ah there it is there it is right there. And it's good to make it explicit because maybe we are sometimes guilty of just leaving them at the bottom of the escalator and not repacking because repacking yeah. is difficult. So it's good to just sort of know that so that we can watch ourselves and check ourselves and make sure we do that all important thing. Yes. Lovely. Well done. Thank you. You're <laughs> that, was my, that was my teacher voice there. <laughs> Thank you, miss. <laughs> well done, Tom. Well, A star for you. Hey. Okay. Um, oh, you're not going to believe this. This is random. It's you again, mm. and it's something interesting. That's okay, because I've just taken a big swig of coffee. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> not wine. Yeah. Anyway, no, 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 it's coffee. It's coffee, Vice-Chancellor Honest Gov. <laughs> uh, it is not a transparent mug, though, so it could be anything in there. <laughs> All right, so this is something interesting for me again, is it? Mm-hmm. Okay, and I am, I'm getting a bit sciencey here, I think, because I'm going to uh, talk about something that happened 30 years ago this February. Oh. Yeah, which is that um, the one of the Voyager spacecraft uh, turned its camera back at the Earth as it left the solar system and took a picture <gasps> of the Earth. Wow. Uh, and this has become an extremely famous picture. And it is a picture I was aware of. Um, it, it's sort of a, starting to appear a little bit more as, as we approach the 30th anniversary of the taking of this picture. I was aware of the picture, but I wasn't aware of a lovely quote um, that came with it that just kind of makes us think a little bit. So if you are uh, sitting with your, your tyrannical device in front of you listeners, you could mm. maybe fire up Mr. Google at this point and uh, see if you can find the pale blue dot 
photo. It's simply known as the pale blue dot photo. And to save Emma the trouble, I'm going to show her a picture of the pale blue dot photo. You've shown me this before, yeah. yeah. And if you zoom it in, you can see the Earth. And it's it's less than one pixel on this picture because Voyager was, you know, billions of miles, just over three billion miles away mm. from us by the point that it took this picture. And you you can see that it, it's just sort of caught in a in a bit of glare from the sun, and it's this tiny, tiny pale blue dot, which which I knew about, but I didn't know that that there was a quote uh, that went with it from a talk that was given by uh, again I'm not entirely sure how to pronounce the name Carl Sagan or Sagan I'm not yeah, quite sure, yeah. but he. He gave a talk about this picture and I just thought that at this this moment of pause in the year we could just have a little think about this uh, and he says look again at that dot that's here that's home that's us on it everyone you love everyone you know everyone you ever heard of every human being who ever was lived out their lives every teacher of morals every corrupt politician every superstar Every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. Wow. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale life. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. Oh, topical. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe, you know, quite apart from, you know, all the all the climate change stuff that's going mm. on at the moment in the news, actually just from a really kind of individual personal point of view, it's a great reminder when we believe that you know today's crisis <laughs> is all encompassing and you know or maybe that what we do is is super important that maybe it's not really <laughs> oh that's a great one it just made me think about mm. anyone planning assemblies mm. i think or or if you yes. if you're working with a tutor group yes. that it might lead to some really nice discussion yeah it might so you could use it for that um and you could just use it to get a sense of perspective <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, we're talking about semantic gravity. I just yeah. zoomed like Zoom, into right, the cosmos. Snap zoomed out <laughs> to the entire. Yeah, exactly. But do you know what? It doesn't have to do us good sometimes because oh, I, I think, think we do so. get a bit a bit bound up in in these crises of our lives and our work sometimes. So just remember, everything that's ever been uh, in human life Ooh. has happened on a dot that is the fraction of a pixel. We've got a bit of a sciencey feel, yeah, inadvertent I'm, sciencey like feel science. to this. Yeah. yeah, I do. I do. Lovely. <laughs> Thank you for that. Okay. Right. It's me. It's Finally, you, you oh, get a break. I've just finished my coffee. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's me, and it's something to try. Okay. Um, and this something to try was inspired by a thread that was kicked off on Twitter um, by Tom Bennett. And for those of you who don't follow Tom Bennett, um, he is founder of Research Ed. Um, he is behaviour advisor to um, the government in England and uh, many other things. But and, f and first and foremost, a teacher. <laughs> He is, he is many other things. <laughs> many other things, yes. Um, <laughs> and um, he he sent out quite an interesting um, question into the Twitter sphere. Um, and I shall read it to you now and some of the things that came out of said question. So, hive mind 
colon. What is the best literacy intervention a teacher slash school can make for a year 11 set in January? For the improvement of a wide range of subjects, dot, dot, dot. Okay, so he's basically asking, you've got year 11 now for a a mere sort of four or five more months. What single literacy intervention can a teacher make or a school make um, that's going to make, you know, that's going to make a difference, that's going to have an impact on on their results um, in relation to their GCSEs? I just thought this was a, a, a good question. It's it was an interesting, interesting question. question. Yeah, I like the multiple subjects bit. Yeah, exactly. Because as we know, and, you know, we've had a couple <laughs> of we've had a couple of literacy focused episodes, um, but we are all teachers of literacy, um, and we also know that you know. PISA doesn't always cover us in glory in Wales for for literacy so any more ideas we can add to the pot (laughs) I was just thinking it's nice to acknowledge some subjects other than English exist sometimes That yeah. was just my experience. True that. Oh, right. Um, so I just thought I would I would read a couple of um, the interesting responses on here as potential things to try. So the first person says, and I quite like the way they phrase this, no hard evidence to prove this. But for year 11, at that stage, I would suggest looking at command words in exam questions. So describe, explain, state, circulate, prove. All a bit functional, I know but would fit your criterion of applying to a range of subjects. And then someone has added to that a comment, AQA, do a list. Um, And I know that there are multiple other kind of people out there who've put together their own lists of command verbs on exam papers. So for student teachers out there, I would urge you to look at your own year 11 exam papers and and have a think about uh, uh, command verbs and whether you explicitly teach them or talk to your mentor, do they explicitly teach them? So that's maybe something to try. Yeah, I quite like that idea as well. I mean, we've all been there when we've picked up a year 11 slightly later than we would like. Mm. Um, and you know what? Sometimes you just got to go functional. So I quite like that. Yeah, I liked it too. Um, so another person, put, this was a, in a similar vein, um, but zooming out a little bit more. Um, this person says, for year 11, exam paper literacy, subject question types, how to read them, what they mean, planning answers we call it paper craft like that but is but it's really literacy of the tasks so practice practice as much practice on reading the questions as answering them build comfort and confidence I like that build comfort and confidence um and another one I'll just read you one more um here it is reading a broadsheet newspaper once a week works well (laughs) So that was a bit more controversial. Nice idea. Yeah, it's there. Um, So there's a a load of other ones on this thread um, that you could have a look at in your own time, um, you know, with a wealth of other things to maybe try or to look into in in greater detail. But I think something to try if you're a student teacher is to, first of all, just make sure that, you know, for year 11, you know um, kind of what the miles left are for them to get under their belt before they get to exam time so maybe looking at their exam papers and having a chat with your mentor about you know where they are at um in their trajectory towards exam success <laughs> yeah because that last bit of year 11 moves at speed doesn't it i've never yeah. done it but i'm told that when you when you 
do a parachute jump when you get right near the end the ground comes at you a lot faster than you expected a bit like that with year 11 <laughs> yeah and it's and it kind of fits in with your point about um, what has most leverage in yes. well-being what has the most leverage in these final months um and literacy is a nice one to have a look at yay okay thank you you're welcome i think it's going to be me again now <laughs> yeah i think i i think you've got a few oh to i've up. got to run i've got to run now okay so um i've got a well-being one um, and my second well-being one is a very short article that I stumbled across in The Guardian by Oliver Berkman. Um, it actually was published on the 13th of December, so not too long ago. And it's entitled, You Can't Fix Everything, So Start By Accepting Life's Niggles. Um, the strapline is, what if you could solve your problems by shifting your perspective? That's got to be worth a try. Um, this is in his health and well-being column, so I will start said article. It's only only short. Mm-hmm. The Zen teacher Charlotte Joko Beck once said, "What makes it unbearable is your mistaken belief that it can be cured." I think about this line a lot. One of its implications is that problems in life aren't only a consequence of how things are, but of how you feel they ought to be. If you didn't need things to be different there would be no problem. This is perhaps most obvious in the case of obsessive perfectionism. If you are the type who will only deem Christmas acceptable if everything goes exactly to plan, no family arguments, children thrilled with every gift, the crust on the roast potatoes precisely crunchy enough, you are sure to be disappointed. And the real cause of your disappointment won't be how reality unfolded, but the impossible standard to which you were holding it. There's nothing intrinsically wrong with soggy roast potatoes after all. You add the wrongness just as you add the gravy. The great insight of Zen and several other traditions is that all suffering might arise this way from the inner insistence that reality not be how it is. At least in principle, there are always two ways to address any problem. You can change the way things are or change the fact that you wish they weren't that way. And, as a practical matter, you often can't change how how things are. So the beginning of psychological freedom, to quote the Zen writer John Tarrant, lies in asking the question, wait a minute, what if this is it? (laughs) The glib way to interpret this insight is that it might somehow be possible to deal with any setback, the deepest grief, the most grinding poverty, simply by deciding not to care about it. The non-glib interpretation is that in the midst of any problem, of any gravity, it's always useful if you can remember to ask yourself whether, in some subtle way, you are resisting the experience of how things are, or staking your happiness on them being very different in the future. In one of the books I've been most grateful to discover this year, already free, the psychotherapist Bruce Tift suggests asking yourself what it might be like to continue living with your biggest problems until the end of your life. What if you're always single or never find fulfilling work or never stop being driven up the wall by that thing that your spouse does? Tift says that he never experiences any problems in his marriage but only because he no longer considers it a problem to experience emotional disturbance within it which he does every day. Even people who take an admirable degree of responsibility for their issues often harbour the secret hope that, given enough time and effort, they will be free of them once and for all. But what if you never change? 
How much of any problem is the problem? And how much is just the fact that it's still there when, God damn it, you were supposed to be rid of it by your age? Once you accept that family bickering might always be the feature of Christmas, there's even a kind of sweetness to it, except when there isn't, and that's fine too. The delightful thing about reality being an incurable condition is that you needn't fret about curing it. And that's it. Thank you. Isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah. I don't know whether I read that particularly well, but... Um, read it beautifully. Hopefully, hopefully it resonates. And apparently there's an episode of the podcast entitled Insights at the Edge, um, where psychotherapist Bruce Tift asks what it might mean to abandon the notion that a good life is one without pain, anxiety or disturbance. So have a little listen to that as well. There we go. Very nice. Thank you for that. Yeah, welcome. Okay, who is next? Is it you again? It's me. (laughs) And it's uh, something to try. Okay. Okay. So my something to try um, is something that I've been hearing a lot about um, on the airwaves in relation to oracy and a greater focus on developing pupils' oracy. So if you don't know what oracy is, um, speaking and listening and those those literacy skills. Um, And... I've heard a number of student teachers actually, namely within the Teach First uh, programme, talking about the Harkness model. Um, the Harkness model, if I just turn to the correct page in my book here, um, was developed by Edward Harkness. So on April the 9th, 1930, American philanthropist Edward Harkness wrote to Philip Exeter Academy's principal, Lewis Perry, regarding how a considerable donation he made to the Academy might be used. And then I quote, what I have in mind is a classroom where students could sit around a table with a teacher who would talk with them and instruct them by a sort of tutorial or conference method where each student would feel encouraged to speak up. This would be a real revolution in methods. The result, championed by Phillips Exeter Academy, New Hampshire, is the Harkness discussion. Twelve students sit around an oval table and engage in free-flowing, open, collaborative discussion on the subject at hand, guided by their teacher. As part of a Harkness discussion, the contributions made by the students are tracked visually and a key records the nature of the contribution. This provides a record of the discussion and enables the participants to see how their contributions fit into the wider discussion and to reflect on their role in moving the group's knowledge and understanding forward. Mm. So it's a kind of um, pedagogical approach to seminar discussions and there are a lot of teachers out there who have written about how to um, conduct that with all age groups um, you know, right the way up to you know doing it in higher education institutes so at undergraduate and postgraduate level. Um, It's different to um, Socratic questioning, which adopts a similar sort of um, dialogic approach. Um, And it's very hands-off from a teacher perspective. So it's really important to think about using it at a point where your pupils are ready to engage in it. 
Um, but ultimately what it does in a nutshell is it involves the teacher giving um, some content, let's say a chapter uh, of a book that um, they've been studying or a textbook or a play text or whatever it is that you're looking at. It does work in maths, by the way. Um, you need to read more into it uh, on that on that note if, you, um, if you're a maths teacher. Um, they read up on something. They devise their own questions um, or you can as the teacher help them to um, construct their questions they sit in a circle and then you allow silence and they conduct the kind of quest for knowledge and understanding of what they've read um, in that description that I just gave you it talks about how the teacher can track and observe um, what's going on in the discussion uh, and via a discussion tracking tool and what that looks like is you'll be able to see this if you google it it's an oval shape with with what looks to be a spider's web in the middle so around the oval you've got the initials of your pupils who are engaging in the Harkness model um, so you could do this in small groups if you've got a large class or indeed there's another model where you have observe you have pupils of observe as observers so you could have a group who are engaging in the Harkness discussion and you could have a group of pupils on the outside who are tracking it um, and they're tracking things like when people ask clarifying or probing or challenging questions. Another key is for when a pupil refers to the text to build on the discussion. Another one is um, when someone adds an insight to build on the discussion. Another one is where somebody instigates a new line of conversation, where someone builds consensus, where someone makes meaningful connections. So it's a really useful tool, not only in encouraging your learners to discuss and listen um, to what it is that they're learning about but also to um, examine what makes for healthy discussion and debate so I would urge you to go out there and do some more reading and research on the Harkness model um, and uh, maybe try it out in your own practice. And what is that book with all the post-it notes sticking out of it ah, that you were just reading from? Now, this is something interesting because I am going to talk about a chapter from this book, and okay. something interesting, but it is Transform Teaching and Learning Through Talk, The Oracy Imperative by Amy Gaunt and Alice Stott. Thank you. Okay. All right. Very, very good. Oh, we've only got two, two of the 12 days of Christmas left. Oh. <laughs> okay, Tom, it's you. It's uh, me. It's your last one <clears throat> and it's your last something to something try. Something to try. Okay, now this was a late addition to my list mm -hmm. and I... I found, uh, to be honest, I just love the name of this mm. thing. <laughs> okay. A, I would say it's a vintage Tom contribution. Uh, <laughs> I, um, what year? <laughs> this year, darling. Um, I would like us just to think of something to try. Um, we have all been in a situation I'm sure in school where we've had somebody go off uh, you know on I don't know long-term sick or maternity or just leave and go to another job very unexpectedly or something like that and it be a pain in the neck because mm -hmm. we end up picking up all the pieces so I would like to introduce to you listeners the concept and this is not one I've made up myself this is genuinely the name of this the concept of the bus factor <laughs> <laughs> So the bus factor is uh, the name given to the concept of um, how many people 
in your project it would take to be hit by a bus <laughs> before your project ran into serious serious trouble Oh, okay. <laughs> and for those of us, I guess, who work in particularly small departments like music or drama, it may be that we often wrestle with the bus factor. Mm. But I wouldn't mind betting that actually even those larger departments like English, maths and science have probably got some bits of their day-to-day -day operations that are in danger of having a very low bus factor yes namely the fact that if a person in your school a particular person in your school gets hit by the metaphorical bus you are going to be absolutely stuffed yes and it's just one of those things that because we're all very busy and everybody's working at 90 miles an hour sometimes even when you know somebody's leaving because you know notice periods in school are actually quite long you've normally got mm. you've got at least kind of six weeks usually of warning that somebody's about to go it still can sometimes bite you very hard once they've gone because you didn't really get time um, to work out that they were the only person that knew a particular thing or they had the only copy of something or, you know, they, they had whatever it may be. So I'm just going to suggest, listeners, that perhaps if we are making a New Year's resolution, one of them might be as a department or as a team to just go and have a look at all your bits and bobs in your work and just check that there's nothing there that's got a bus factor of one. Yes. I mean, this podcast probably good. has a bus factor of one, doesn't it? Because I'm the only one with the keys to it at the moment. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I have. It, yeah, it's a very good point. And that's, yeah. that's the reason why I need to learn the, the magical art the of editing. <laughs> I need and to learn the wires. Learn the wires, yeah. So, yeah, I, and I just love the name. I just, I just think it's a brilliantly kind of uh, yes. brutal name for it that actually we've all been there. We've all had a complete nightmare to pick up because somebody's been hit by the metaphorical bus yeah and i suppose you've got to ask yourself that if it has a bus factor of one then mm. are you taking too much on yourself yes and actually let's be honest some of us bring that upon ourselves because mm. we can be terribly kind of um, proprietorial about things we don't actually like to share things mm. we want to keep our projects close to our chest you mm. know whatever it may be but actually uh, it it works both ways because the people who are left behind if you do go off on the sick or on maternity or something are going to have a complete nightmare but you're potentially going to get badgered as well yes. after you've gone mm. um, people are going to be trying to get in touch with you and say where's this what's the password for that how did you do this can I have that it's probably better to uh, raise your bus factor a bit so that you can go off on the sick or maternity or off to that new job without baggage kind of following you long into the future it's making me think actually about the significance of colleagues such as teaching assistants and yeah. you know really really building good relationships with them and enfranchising them within the process of your planning and you know so that if you were off and there was a cover assistant then actually that TA knows how you roll and knows how things go down in your classroom so if kids decide you know to uh, <laughs> to start to play differently whilst the cat is away oh, yes. <laughs> then um, you know it's it, it's it's worth kind of you know building that bus factor and making it a little bit higher yeah, and it doesn't always involve having to sit someone down and explain it all to them. You know, no. sometimes you just need to leave things suitably documented. You know, things yeah. that are in your head maybe need to go down on paper or on the computer and people know where to find it.
Brilliant one. There we go. The bus factor. The bus factor. <laughs> Vintage Tom. <laughs> Wellbeing leverage. The bus factor. <laughs> I know. Semantic gravity. That's the only oh. one we've taken from yeah, an actual academic article. Well, if you are still with us, yeah, it's time to well take the done. decorations down because it's the twelfth day of Christmas. It nearly is actually. Well, I mean, we've been going for a while. Oh goodness, you're gonna have to do a good edit on this, Tom. <laughs> it's all going up. Okay, right. My something interesting. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna pair it right back. Okay, and I'm, I'm gonna hopefully crystallise it with one quote, and then I'm gonna give you um, a something interesting to read off the back of it. So. This is a quote um, that I found on somebody's blog. The blog is the Learning Power Approach blog by Becky Carlson. Um, And in that blog, uh, she is advocating the importance of oracy in the classroom. Um, It's a quote by Stephen Hawking. I'm gonna read it to you first and I'm gonna tell you about the book I've been reading. So, for millions of years, mankind lived just like the animals. Then something happened which unleashed the power of our imagination. We learned to talk and we learned to listen. Speech has allowed the communication of ideas, enabling human beings to work together to build the impossible. Mankind's greatest achievements have come about by talking and its greatest failures by not talking. It doesn't have to be like this. Our greatest hopes could become reality in the future. With the technology at our disposal, the possibilities are unbounded. All we need to do is to make sure we keep talking. So that is a nice kind of opener and and another nod to science, um, to uh, a a real kind of wave, a revolution in making... um, oracy hot on the agenda in schools and it's the voice 21 agenda um, which comes out of school 21 which is a a london school i'm just going to read to you about the two authors very short passage on the back of this book the book if you forgot from earlier on is transform teaching and learning through talk the oracy imperative amy gaunt and Alice Stott, Lead Teaching and Learning at Voice 21, a charity dedicated to raising the status of oracy in schools across the UK and worldwide. They've supported thousands of teachers and hundreds of schools across the UK to embrace oracy in their pedagogy and the curriculum. And this book is a really user-friendly, practical um exposition of how to develop learning through talk and learning to talk uh, simultaneously. I'll just read you a tiny little passage to that end. So speaking skills must be taught rather than simply caught by a fortunate few. Although as teachers we cannot control the amount of language students arrive at school with or what happens beyond the school gates to change this, we do have control over what happens in our classrooms. The power to create language-rich classrooms filled with talk is in our hands. Um, They make a very, very important case um, for why oracy is important, but they say in this book, oracy is understood as both learning to talk and learning through talk. It is through talk that students use their collective thinking power to build and revise their understanding, negotiate complex ideas and problem solve. This could be driven through interactions with peers or with teachers who through their questioning guide students to engage 
their higher order thinking. And it says the best oracy teaching and learning takes place when students are both learning through and to talk. This is when students are negotiating and developing their subject knowledge and understanding through talk, which has been set up and scaffolded in such a way that they are also learning the skills needed to talk effectively. Um, and that Harkness model that I talked to you about earlier on is advocated um, in this book uh, as one of many, many strategies to um, to help to teach our pupils to talk so giving them really clear structures not just structures for speaking but also structures for being good listeners as well so I really really highly recommend um, that you that you get that book I do like that quote about the importance of talking um, gives us permission to carry on podcasting I think doesn't it, <laughs> yeah, it does. <laughs> yeah even if the listener at this stage is going shut up yep. <laughs> go away oh, what a, what a wonderful life yeah it's, it's been a wholesome Christmas special this one we were we were very light last year we've been very wholesome this year oh no I think Excellent. that's permission to be uh, suitably, suitably slapdash when it comes to the the Easter oh, special oh yes I'm going to be I'm going to be get sacked with something I bring to that I suspect <laughs> brilliant well I hope some of that has been useful and interesting or maybe just run a white noise in the background while you (laughs) eat and drink yes it's been a lovely year happy christmas yes oh we should probably say as well we've got some really great episodes coming up in the new year we've got um our lovely colleague jordan allers who's going to be coming uh, on to talk about uh, coaching and mentoring. We've got Professor David James, Professor of Education at Cardiff University, who's going to be talking to us about research-informed practice. And we've got the wonderful ladies, Finola and Jane of Impact Wales. Twitter royalty. Oh, Edgy yes. Twitter royalty, no less. So um, please uh, continue to subscribe and to download our episodes and have a listen because they're three really great episodes we've got coming up in the new year. We shall bring you more throughout the year. Have a lovely Christmas. Yeah. A Christmas gift of a couple of weeks of peace from me beckons. Yeah, me too. <laughs> and, uh, and have a lovely uh, New Year's Eve celebrations as well. Yes, we'll be back on the 10th of January with lovely. our usual service. But until then, have a wonderful festive season and a rest. And enjoy not teaching. <laughs> Bye. That was Emma and Tom's Christmas podcast presented by Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. Thank you to all the guests who have appeared on the podcast this year. Dr Judith Neen, Sean Davis-Barnes, Professor Graham Donaldson, Georgina Saunders, James Emery, Harry and Tanvir from Eastern High School in Cardiff, Paul Warren and Bethan Rowlands. This episode was brought to you by Sharon Balin, Carl Mayton, the Voyager 1 Space Probe, Carl Sagan, Tom Bennett and the Twitter Hive Mind, Oliver Berkman, Alice Stott, Amy Gaunt and Becky Carlson. We'd like to wish all our listeners a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2020 and until next time, take care and enjoy teaching. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) There we go. (laughs) That was long.